And so we're continuing this step series, and I get the privilege of sharing with you. And what I really want us to kind of sit with in the time we have here is that there are moments in our lives where faith in Jesus means moving into danger rather than away from it. That there's something about this faith journey of following Jesus and being uh, willing to move forward with him that longs to, uh, how do I say this, transform us into a people defined by people who um, step into situations that our natural instincts would say we should never step near. And I, I can't help but be reminded of an incident that happened a number of years ago when my wife and I had the privilege of going to Rwanda and serving these orphans for a number of weeks. And we were in Kigali, and they had this, this ranch, this complex, and they, it was gated. They had a security detail. And in, in this somewhat small ranch, it wasn't necessarily too small. They had several houses for the orphans. They had a school on the premises, cafeteria. They have several houses for long-term and short-term missionaries. And they also had something unique that I wasn't expecting. They had this wide open field and they had soccer goals and then they had a, a, a small like paved track around the dirt. And in the middle of it, there was this pull-up bar. And I had just uh, at the time uh, removed my cast. I had uh, broken my wrist a number of months prior to that. And so I was just now starting to be able to do physical activity and, you know, I, I need to do physical activity. It, it gets me down to normal, okay? And so I was looking forward to this, and I knew we were going to be in Rwanda, and so when I saw that, I was very excited. I decided I didn't want to make, like, you know, draw attention or cause any disruptions in the schedule of the day, so I decided to wake up a little earlier and went and did my run and was nice not to itch inside the cast, and then I went to the pull-up bar, and I had checked with my doctor, can I do pull-ups? He says, I don't know, can you? Um, <laughs> I said, all right, uh, is it okay for me to do them uh, with you know, rehabbing? He says, well, you might want to do one or two, take your time, don't push yourself too hard. And so you know, I went for the line and I just started. And when I got there, you know, it had been a number of months, it was hard to do one. But when I got there, I noticed all around the pull-up bar, there, kind of these two posts in the pull-up bar, there were all these holes in the, in the dirt floor. Now, in the US, those holes mean gophers. I didn't know what they meant in Africa. And so later in that day, after doing my routine, I asked one of the kids, you know, between 10 and 14 years old is what their age range was. I asked them, hey, what are those holes around the pull-up bar? Who, what, what makes those? He says, oh, and they address everybody by uncle or auntie. Uncle Lewis, those are snake holes. <laughs> I said, oh, cool. And they were playing around, and everything was casual and normal, and so I just didn't make a fuss. I thought, man, they must be gardener snakes or something. And so later that evening, I went on Wi-Fi. We had Wi-Fi in our room, and I looked up, what kind of snakes exist in Rwanda? Discovered they're black mambas. <laughs> and I thought, what, a black mamba? What, what are black mambas? I know the player. <laughs> and so I looked it up, and I saw it. It's one of the most venomous snakes in the world. And it just so happens Rwanda is one of the few locations in the world where they dominate the landscape. I thought, oh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> but I still had this itch. I still needed to do something with my wrist. I was desperate. So I decided I'd create myself a little alarm system. And I went and I got all these sticks. They had branches on them, leaves on them. It wasn't windy. And I put the sticks in the holes. I know, foolproof. Um, <laughs> 
And I figured, I'm gonna do my pull-ups, and if these branches or sticks move, that, that means the snake's coming out of his hole, and that'll give me the opportunity to run away, escape. So later that day, I did my thing. Later that day, uh, one of the kids comes up to me and says, hey, Uncle Lewis, did you put all those sticks, many holes, did you put all those sticks, you can see it, all these sticks, <laughs> branches and leaves, did you put those in the holes? And I said, yeah. And then they looked at me, and they giggled a little bit, and they said, Uncle Lewis, are you afraid of snakes? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm looking out for the snake. Uh, they clearly saw through it, just like you did. And they said, oh, Uncle Lewis. And then they decided to equip me with some knowledge how to survive in this environment. They said, Uncle Lewis, if a snake comes out of the hole, all you have to do is grab it by the head, squeeze the venom out, and then kill it. I said, that's all I got to do? <laughs> yeah. If the snake comes out of the hole, you grab it by the head, you make sure the fangs are facing down. You squeeze the back of the head, you see the liquid come out, and then you kill it. Huh. Okay. And I have to say, it didn't really come as natural to me <laughs> as it seemed to come to them. And they have a security detail that protected the premises, but they were also responsible for protecting the interior of the premises. And so they had seen men do the very thing they were describing to me. They had seen this modeled to them. And so to them, this is a part of living in their environment. And, and this, this is, here's, in many ways, they lived in a very dangerous setting. But rather than making the threat they lived in, something that dominated them, they decided to live in a way that was aware and courageous in the midst of it, even indeed willing to play. It was remarkable. And I, I remember being moved by it because I have to say, especially early on in my faith journey, uh, having Jesus in my life meant mitigating risk. It meant being protected from failure, danger, disappointment, heartbreak. I used to think that bringing Jesus into my life meant being insulated from the very reason I came to bring Jesus into my life. That it would prevent any of that to happen ever again. And if there was a dangerous environment, Jesus would be the one who just somehow removed the danger. I say this because I think many times we have this common misconception of what it is like to have faith in Jesus. But see, what we don't understand is that life that does not risk, have fears, experience failure, disappointment, pain, or heartbreak, it's a life that doesn't require faith. Because when we talk about taking a step where faith gets moving, you know what we're really saying? In essence, inherently, what we are saying is that we're describing a way of life that is in the midst of a dangerous circumstance, that is on the edge of what is possible. And then when we say, so that's, that's the environment of faith, where it's required. And then when we say faith is on the move, you know what we're saying? We're saying that there is a degree of hope and courage and confidence to move into that dangerous situation, circumstance, or environment. Rarely means away from. Sometimes, this is why the people within the scriptures, 
they seem so far beyond reach. Because when we read them, what we are really reading is um, a people group who are demonstrating what happens when a person lives in the environment where faith must be exercised. For there is no other alternative that's viable. And if you open up your handout, there's this one particular account of this man that I have long admired. And just so we understand what, what's happening here is that um, the chronicler is giving us a snapshot of the type of men King David surrounded himself with. He was known to have the three, the mighty three who were his elite forces. And then he had what was referred to as the 30. Though the number of men were larger than 30, this was the second tier of his military units. And among the 30, what was described was, uh, what's highlighted is a certain man named Benaiah. And what we're given are three snapshots of this man, a summary of sorts that captured the essence of who this man is. And we read it in verse 20, that there are also... There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a, a valiant warrior from Kabzael. And he did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab, meaning there was a military contest. And he went to verse 1. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. If there's one word we would use for this man, we would say crazy. Uh, perhaps we would say unreasonable. Some of us would even say foolish. But the scriptures say heroic. And it must be a typo, but most certainly is not. It seems that the one who was running away was the lion and not the man. And just so we understand, Lions don't run away. They chase. This is in a time in history in which it was impossible to have long-range hunting. If you weren't a bow and arrow type of person, which Benaiah wasn't, it meant up close and personal. And Benaiah, just so the author makes sure no detail is lost on us, says Benaiah didn't just chase a lion, he chased the lion on a snowy day. That's the author's way of saying, a regular day wasn't hard enough for Benaiah. <laughs> it needed to be extraordinarily more difficult, more challenging, and more dangerous. And you could just imagine Benaiah chasing a lion, what the lion must have been thinking. What kind of man Benaiah was. That he went home for safety. The lion. And we're told in verse 20, 21 that once armed with only a club, and this is violent, really a picture of what life was back, like back then between nations and disputes. He killed an imposing Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. That is a, a man who had the ability to lunge from afar. Benaiah drew close. Benaiah wrenched, wrenched a spear from the Egyptian's hand and he, and he just ended his life. Just tells us matter-of-factly. Verse 22, deeds like these, Benaiah, these like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors is what we're told. In other words, these, these three incidents elevated Benaiah above his peers. 
He wasn't one of the three, but it somewhat equalized him with the three. And we're not really told. Here's the deal. We're not really told much about his character, his personality, his upbringing. We don't know his pedigree. No details really are given besides the fact that he had three moments in his life of calculated risks. And each of these moments are denoted by his single, his willingness to step into danger. And those three moments, well, it transformed him into a man who was more honored, we're told, in 23 than the other members of the 30. That is, all his peers, no one chose this. His peers elevated him and said, Benaiah has something that's head and shoulders above us. He is worthy of the honor. And though he was not one of the three, and David made him captain of his bodyguard, which makes sense. Because if I'm David, I want the most courageous person in the land protecting me and my family. How about you? It, these three moments, not knowing it, actually became moments, stepping moments, to elevate him to the highest position in his career. And here's the thing about something like this. Uh, this is fine if our natural disposition is faith-oriented, right? Uh, there are some people who seem to be naturally courageous. They, they seem to be people who are born with a gene of courage. Like danger wakes them up. And they run into it. It's kind of like the people who are naturally smarter, naturally better looking, naturally more talented. They all need forgiveness. <laughs> and we need to do it over and over again because I never identified with any of those people. See, I remember growing up being more uh, able to identify with the group that was naturally not smart, the group that naturally uh, was more afraid, that naturally decided to quit and desired to quit, that naturally was apt to be shy and quiet and would back away from any challenge. I remember being the, the boy and the adolescent and even the young adult who felt in many ways insecure and unsure of what it was like to be in my own skin, let alone stepping forward into something dangerous. I remember that. And, it, and many times I remember reading passages like these. And sometimes I would say, wow. Benaya, you're amazing. And other times I would say, man, that's impossible. If that's faith, I don't have enough. Because I'm nowhere near that. I was reading this book by Mark Batterson explaining this very incident, this taking a look at this episode in the scriptures, and he spoke of something called the butterfly effect. And I went ahead and took that excerpt, and I decided I, I, I'd love to share it with you. He says, this is why the butterfly effect is something quite important to be aware of. In 1960, an MIT meteorologist named Edward Lawrence made an accidental discovery while he was trying to develop a computer program that could simulate and forecast weather conditions. One day, he was in a hurry, and instead of entering 0.506127, the number he had used in an earlier trial, he rounded to the nearest thousandth, or 0.506. Lawrence figured that rounding a number to the nearest thousandth would be inconsequential. So he left the lab, went and had a cup of coffee, and when he returned, he found a radical change in the weather conditions. 
Lawrence estimated that the numerical difference between the original number and the rounded number was the equivalent of a puff of wind created by a butterfly's wing. He concluded that a minor event like the flapping of a butterfly's wing could conceivably alter wind currents sufficiently to eventually change weather conditions thousands of miles away. Lawrence then introduced the scientific community to what is now known as the butterfly effect. This document ended up becoming the foundation for what is now accepted as chaos theory. Now, I'm no expert in physics by any means. But a rudimentary understanding of chaos theory is that any small change has the capacity to change everything. And therefore, what used to be accepted is that the future is predictable if the variables are all in alignment. But chaos theory says, nope, one minute butterfly flap changes everything. And the future is extraordinarily hard to predict. It's true in science, it's true in life. Small changes and small choices become magnified over time and have major consequences. Everything we change changes everything. And too often we fail to connect the dots between choices and consequences. Every choice has a domino effect and it can alter our destiny. Because listen, faith, Faith is a contentious endeavor that pulls us straight out of our comfort and into places that are dangerous to us. And every step we take into the lion's pit in our lives, it really doesn't matter how small that step is. It can transform us. Indeed, it will. This is why we have to understand this is not simply something for us to be able to admire, but for us to be able to step into. See, firstly, though, we have to acknowledge something. Our fears, I asked them to put this up there, they can chase us wherever we go. They have the ability to, to hunt us down like a lion. We may not live in a land filled with literal lions as a part of our our reality, but we do live in a world where anxiety and fear, both rational and irrational threats and reasons to be slightly paranoid are real. It's a peculiar time. We have the ability to be able to travel across the country, indeed around the world in a day. We have the ability in technology advancement to be able to connect with somebody somewhere else on the planet and be able to see them and discuss with them like if they're in the room. It's the most advanced generation we have ever had in human history. And yet one thing has not been solved for, how to outrun our fear. We can uproot ourselves and move with relative ease and start afresh. But no matter where we go, that lion is there. And in a sense, it can be relentless because, listen, the environment around us may not be as critical as the environment within us. 
Look at what John Milton, he was a 17th century author, wrote the epic poem, Paradise Lost. Look what he said. He said, the mind is its own place. Um, and in itself, it, it, is, it is able to, look, can make a heaven out of hell and a hell of heaven. He was touching on a penetrating truth. Do you see it? He was saying the way we think about something has enormous impact on how we experience it. And so we can create heaven on earth, which is what many of us seek to do today, and still consider the experience hellish. Or we can experience heaven come to earth in our own lives, and still something inside of us still gravitates and chooses to focus on the darkness both out and inward. It's an amazing thing, the mind. And perhaps that's why Jesus didn't ever deliver somebody from the need to work, exercise, or live their life and make decisions. Some of the most amazing miracles Jesus performed, he did not deliver them from any of those choices or any of those realities. What he did was he would deliver them from the cognitive barrier, from their ability to be able to work, to be able to be able to exercise make good choices, and live their life. He would empower them. And then those who were subjugated and felt somewhat repressed, all of a sudden, because he stepped into their lives, found themselves in the same environment, but internally revolutionized. They were different people. It's almost as if this is something only Jesus can do in the human soul. Is address the way we think and the way we see and interpret. Look at what Paul said to the Romans. He says, listen, I, I want you to do something. You who are beginning your faith journey, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world around you. Don't let the value systems of your culture, of the, the environment you live in, dictate how you are to experience or interpret everything going on. That varies depending on the fad, depending on what's going on in culture. The winds are fierce. Don't let that be your guiding point. No. Instead, let God transform you into what? A new person by changing the way you think. Let him step into your life, and you know what will emerge? It will not be emerge in terms of what you have seen. It will be completely new. If you allow him to start addressing how you are interpreting everything around you, everything within you, this matters because listen, faith, faith moves us from being chased. It does. It moves us. Many times, none of us can have a hard time empathizing with what it is like to be afraid of our fears catching up to us fulfilling their darkest desires upon us. And it is there many times. That is where faith begins. We are used to running. But it'll, it'll do something to us. It'll start to navigate our soul to become people who face our lines, who no longer run away, but we face. We face them. And that in itself, that is enormously courageous, a huge accomplishment. But faith doesn't stop there. No. This journey, you know what it does? I have this picture in my mind of, of, of running away and choosing to stop and face. 
And something within us starts to be impacted and inspired and strengthened. And then we become those who run after our lions. Because, listen, he longs to make us into people who are able to chase down our lion. I, I, I know this is conjecture. There's nothing I can verify this with. But I am convinced Benaiah didn't start out chasing lions. I think he started out much the typical way of any Israelite in his day, living in an environment where his livestock was under constant threat, in an environment where lions were a part of his everyday experience. And I think he was somewhat tormented by the lion. I think he had experienced what it was like to suffer loss at the lion. I think he had seen what the lion was capable of. And I think that over time, I think he got fed up. And I think something inside of him decided, I'm no longer going to be tormented by this roaring beast. And something inside of him decided not to simply stop and defend, but something inside of him decided to put an end to it. And rather than simply protecting himself and those that he cared for, he decided to take steps toward becoming the one who chased the lion. And we don't know where this all began, and we don't know, but we do know how it ended. It ended in a snowy day, a lion running away from a man who seemed mad with courage, who was no longer allowed to live in fear in the shadow of it, wondering every morning if his livestock was okay, decided, I'm ending this. I'm going to find out where you're at, and I'm going to the root system. I'm going to your dwelling. I'm going to take care of it. This day it ends. Now, if that's us, if that's where he's calling us to, I have to ask a couple things. What are the lions in our lives? And where do they live? Because there are some things we're running away from that we need, we need to run toward. Is it a conversation that we know we need to have, but we're so afraid of getting mauled? Is it extending the risk of unlocking the jail cell of resentment and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness? Stepping out and saying, take the risk, forgive. Is it seeking to reconcile? Is it, is it that we have a dream or a desire, a goal that's so overwhelming to us that we would rather become distracted with all kinds of different endeavors and something inside of us gets zapped because we're seeking to do what we can do, not what we cannot do unless we have a God who is powerful enough to help us do it. And there is something inside of us that requires us to eliminate distractions and be able to pursue the very thing that we have been designed to do. See, is it that? I don't know. I don't know. But I want to ask, what are the lions in our lives that we do not engage because we believe it's of no use? What are the ridiculous prayers that we need to utter in order to see God move in our lives? What are they? What are the challenges we are facing? Which just seems like the smart thing to do is to play it safe. Because God calls us to recognize he is infinite. He is capable. He is he is able to do miraculous things. He is able to transform us, help us gain traction and have breakthrough. He is able to strengthen us and set, help us set our face upon what he desires for us, his best for us. 
Listen, he has given us the ability to generate courage within and to move forward. But he allows us to make the choice to do it. I will never forget the beginning of one of my semesters in my graduate studies. A professor had us all pull out a piece of paper and he said, listen, I'm going to have you do some exercise. You're not going to have to share it with anybody. In fact, some of you guys can throw it away. You can shred it. You can burn it after if you'd like. But you need to write this. You need to do this exercise. He says, now, what I want you to do, all of you, is I want you to write down your greatest fear or your greatest struggle in your faith journey. Go ahead and write that down. And then he said something that I went ahead and I wrote down when he said it, and it stuck with me. I still remember it. The professor had us write down the greatest fear, greatest point of struggle in our faith journey, and then he said this, any gains you make in that area will have exponential impact in every area of your life. A stride one, a step taking into the fear or struggle will compound your level of confidence in God. And it will increase the courage you exercise in every other role you operate in. What he was saying was, you might live your life well and good in some areas, but there's that one area. It torments you. And he's saying, one step in the direction of chasing that lion will require so much faith inside your soul you will discover what it is like to step into courage. And every step you take toward that, well, when you start to discover that he meets you there, and that he not just meets you there, but he helps you take progressive steps forward and overcome and silence it and then be on the other side of it, how much courage do you think you'll operate with in the areas you may not think you need it? We could do that. This is what he desires for us to do. Because listen, we have faith to chase our lions because Jesus is the ultimate lion chaser. He is the one who chased down his lion. What did he chase down on the cross and in his burial and his resurrection? What did he overcome? Well, he overcame shame. We're told that on the cross he endured he endured for the shame of it because of what was up ahead so that any who called on his name would not need to hear the fearful whisper that they are not good enough. If they call on Jesus' name, who is good enough, who died for anyone who would say, I'm not good enough, that is enough. Shame has been silenced. It's gone. What else did he overcome? What line did he chase down into the pit? When he died on that cross, every single one who followed him, believed in him, thought that was game over. It's over. It's done. Three days later, he shows up and he gives them the promise of life, life eternal, both here and now and everlasting. And he converted by his very presence of overcoming death itself. The scriptures say it lost its sting. And all of a sudden, a group of very fearful and terrified men and women became a group of men and women who saw him, saw what he had overcome, and became people who said, you know what? We will speak about this one. 
And we will do it into dangerous places. And we will do it into resistance. And we will do it in the midst of a people who may not totally believe or understand, but we'll do it lovingly. We'll do it gently. We'll do it with grace because that is what we have received. That's an amazing transformation. And if you think about it, you know what he ultimately overcame? He overcame the darkness both within and without. The scriptures say he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them open shame by triumphing over them. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that even in the darkest hour of his life, he didn't allow that darkness to prevail, to extort, to undermine, to blackmail, or to overcome him. Even in his darkest hour, what did he do? He uttered words of grace and forgiveness, triumphing over the very hatred of the people who nailed him. And he said, Father, please forgive them. And even when he was being mocked, one who turned to him and said, will you remember me? He says, in paradise, you will be today. We have overcome. It's a remarkable thing. And he did this. He did this so that any of us, listen, any of us, who call on his name are able to be filled with a love that will never leave nor forsake. And all, all of a sudden we start to understand, listen, the challenges we face, they're not meant to destroy us. They are meant to strengthen us. That when we experience pain or failure or setback, it's not meant to defeat us, but to teach us and empower us and draw us closer to him. It transforms everything. 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 And what... John said, as he said, listen, uh, how do I say this? When we experience that love in our hearts, such love, it, it has no fear. It, it, how do I say this? Perfect love expels it. It chases it away. Because if we are afraid, it's, it's because we think we're going to be punished. But then if we think this way, it's because we have not fully experienced the love that he longs to give us. And if we experience his love penetrating deep into our soul, we will understand that where we are at, the environment we might be in, might be the very environment where he says, exercise your faith and I will show you how to overcome. The danger we might perceive might be the very thing he's saying, step into that and I'll see how strong, you'll see how strong my love for you is. I'll give you the strength to move into it to be a vessel of it, to overcome it. He longs to make us people who chase our lions. We don't run from them. We face them. And we chase them. Father, I thank you that you, you are the one who sees our soul. You see the thoughts, the anxieties. You see our lives completely. And I thank you, you never back down from doing everything it takes for us to be convinced that you love us, that you are for us, not against us, that you will never abandon nor leave us, that you meet us, you transform us, and you help us step into different things around us. I pray that you would give us the courage we need. Help us. Stop running. Start facing. Help us become people who chase. In Jesus' name, amen.